Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 226, Alfred and Legitimacy, The First Steps to War. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to a Shop Talk episode that discusses Alfred's tactics, how he was using discursive clusters to hack the minds of his subjects, and we even made time to talk about the worst Dungeons & Dragons game of all time. And you can get instant access to that and all the other members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jennifer, Walter, and Cameron for signing up already. Also, it's that time of year again. And if you would like to give a BHP membership to the history nerd in your life, you can now do it directly from the site. Just go to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com, look under Membership, and select Gift Certificates. Oh, and members, make sure you log into your account page first, because you'll find a 10% off coupon in there just for you. Okay, on with the show. All my life, I've had issues with my eyes. However, whenever I went to get checked, I'd be told that my eyes were fine and that I had 20-20 vision. And yet, despite what the doctors said, I always had a hard time seeing clearly and would often be found hunched over books reading closer to them than any of my peers. Eventually, age settled in and my 20-20 vision weakened, but even with glasses, I still had a hard time seeing things well. Reading was difficult. I loved it, so I persisted, but it wasn't easy. And then last month, a doctor finally had an answer for me. He put a few lenses into some huge test frames and said, this might blow your mind. And he was right. A headache that I had for my whole life suddenly disappeared as my eyes relaxed for the first time since I could remember. And then when I looked around the room, I could suddenly see the differences in depth between the furniture and the room. I realized that I'd been living in 2D my whole life, but now I could see depth. It turned out that my eyes are slightly misaligned, and so I've been seeing double. My brain compensated for that by ignoring my right eye, but it still took in just enough information to cause everything to be slightly blurry. When the doctor realized this and corrected it, I could see clearly, and in 3D. And you might say, that's ridiculous, Jamie. How could you possibly have missed the fact that you were seeing in double vision? But for me, it wasn't double. It was just vision. I thought that's what everyone saw. I didn't even realize that I had headaches until they went away. For me, this was just what life was like. I thought everyone had pressure when they tried to read, and strained when they tried to focus on something. It was normal. And that realization, that I hadn't been seeing the world for what it was, and that it actually was out of focus and lacking depth, is something I think a lot about when I think about situations like Alfred's. It's so easy to lambast Alfred and other kings of this era. I mean, I've done it. I've been harsh on all kinds of rulers that we've covered. And some have deserved it. For example, I still think that Charles the Bald was an idiot. But others... Well, others were trapped in their culture. And this is something that we talk a great deal more about in the members-only episodes. But this moment for Alfred is crucial to our story. The world for him has ended. He's lost his kingdom, he's been abandoned by most of his nobles, he's homeless, his god was, at the very best, testing the shit out of him, or at worst, abandoning him. 
Wessex was going through a catastrophic breakdown of social order. The norms were being shattered. Everything had been turned on its head. Before this event, the head of the House of Wessex was godly. He was chosen by God to rule. Alfred, his brothers, his father, his grandfather, they were the good guys. And yet they've lost. Evil had triumphed. But the shock of it all, the complete disruption of normalcy, well, it also appears to have given Alfred some clarity. The fact that his culture had failed him was freeing him to look at whether or not that culture really worked. He was on the outside now, and because he was on the outside, he was free to ask if there was a different way to do things, different from the ways that others expected and demanded him to act. So I imagine that this moment might have been a bit like realizing that you've been seeing things all wrong for your entire life. What seemed normal all of a sudden has been revealed to be abnormal. There were problems within Wessex that went well beyond one Viking king. The military organization of the kingdom was clearly inadequate. Alfred's subjects were horrendously uneducated, and that created cascading negative effects. And then there were the huge cultural problems, not the least of which being that too many of Alfred's people were short-sighted and seduced by tribalism. It was too easy to play different factions off of each other. Opportunities to advance in trade and technology were being lost as his people and the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in general refused to cooperate with each other or find common ground. These were problems that would have to be corrected if the kingdom was to survive. But there was something that was keeping Alfred from being able to fix anything. He wasn't king anymore. Guthrum was. So Alfred's first task was to find a way back into power. Luckily for Alfred, Guthrum was starting that job for him. And all of this revolves around the concept of legitimacy. You see, what happens next in our story isn't a war in the conventional sense. Alfred is moving towards a guerrilla war, and guerrilla wars have their own unique set of rules. They have elements that are necessary for them to be successful, and one key element, some might argue the core element, is that the government must be perceived as illegitimate by the population. Now, illegitimacy is very different from unpopularity. Having a widely unpopular ruler wouldn't be enough on its own. Historically, for a guerrilla campaign to have a foundation that will allow it to roll into a broad civil change, you need a situation where the population at large no longer believes that the system itself is legitimate. And it needs to be a broad belief. It can't just be a few people. If it's just you and your buddies who don't believe the government is legitimate, you don't have the elements necessary to run a guerrilla war. At best, you've got the elements necessary to be that annoying table at the pub. Furthermore, that belief of illegitimacy generally can't just be about a particular ruler. Instead, the whole system needs to be condemned. The fact is that there needs to be a breakdown that has been so overwhelming that it can no longer be rectified through debate and social actions in civil society. This is often seen in situations where the ruling class begin to break established laws for their own purposes, generally through direct oppression. And oftentimes, when this occurs, that's when we see the successful guerrilla activities follow. The term guerrilla came from the Peninsular War, when local Spanish peasants took up arms and harried the occupying French forces of Napoleon. 
The peasants were living through a situation where the system had completely broken down, and any attempts at seeking reform within that system resulted in further oppression. Now, if you're looking for some more modern examples of this sort of thing, think about countries where we've seen coups or covert operations to install leaders or foreign invasions followed by direct rule. And many times, when you hear of a guerrilla army, if you look back a few years, you'll see the previous government being brought down by something like that. The modern third world is rife with stories like these. But simply because the word guerrilla has only been around for a couple centuries, doesn't mean that this style of fighting and the elements required to support it are also only a couple centuries old. This is a very old style of war, and the core elements appear to cross cultural lines. And this focus on illegitimacy and the broad popular support for the goals of the guerrillas are pretty consistent for these sorts of actions. And this is where Guthrum comes in. The thing is, that despite his victory, Guthrum was in serious trouble. He was heavily outnumbered, he was foreign, he was a pagan, and he'd taken the kingdom not through force or by a test on the battlefield, but through trickery. He was breaking the unwritten cultural laws of Wessex left and right, and he was probably breaking the written laws too. Now, being a foreign pagan conqueror doesn't necessarily mean that Guthrum would be seen as illegitimate. Halfdan, for example, had successfully ousted the leadership of both Northumbria and Mercia. However, in both cases, he did so via direct combat, which would have satisfied the cultural demands for honor, and he repeatedly demonstrated the weaknesses of the prior rulers. And Burgred, in particular, was heavily delegitimized through war and Danegelds. Halfdan also established Anglo-Saxon puppet rulers, which also would have provided an air of legitimacy for his conquest. In fact, direct rule was something that he only did as a last resort in Northumbria, after he crushed a rebellion against his puppet state. Throughout his campaigns in Britain, Halfdan generally worked within the confines of Anglo-Saxon culture. Guthrum, on the other hand, only seems to have cared about Anglo-Saxon culture so far as it revealed weaknesses that he could exploit. Once he achieved his initial aim, he doesn't appear to have made any efforts to reconcile his rule with the culture of those that he was ruling. And as a consequence of all of this, he had all the hallmarks of an illegitimate ruler. And don't forget the people that we're talking about here. Bad weather, weird birds, and all kinds of other things were also seen as indications of what God thought about your king. And that was bad news for Guthrum, because Wessex was in the dead of winter, when things were cold and generally kind of shitty. So how much do you think he was getting blamed for that as well? It's entirely likely that Unferth and Hilda were quietly talking at home of how it was appalling that Guthrum had usurped the will of both God and man. This savage was unknown to God. He hadn't even been baptized. And no Wittanagamon had chosen him, nor did he prove his honor on the battlefield. Who did he think he was? And the thing that probably kept Guthrum up at night was what would happen if those malcontent peasants and nobles realized that Alfred still lived. I mean, in that case, suddenly the unfocused discontent would have a banner to rally around and a target to focus on. We don't actually know what Guthrum was thinking. We don't have his diaries. But 
I'm relatively sure that he realized how tenuous his position was. Because immediately after taking the throne, he responded the way insecure leaders have done all throughout history. He launched a violent crackdown. Shortly after taking Chippenham, Guthrum's army ravaged the surrounding countryside. Wiltshire, Hampshire, and Somerset all felt his wrath. Some of the attacks might have been close enough to Athelney that, on a good day, Alfred could catch a slight whiff of smoke, and he would have known that Guthrum was out there on the marches, ruthlessly pursuing him. And while they were no doubt looking for Alfred, as their attacks were targeting areas where the Saxon king likely would have been, these attacks had another objective that went far beyond finding Alfred. And that objective was illustrated by the fact that they weren't seeking loot. They weren't raiding. They were doing something else entirely different. With every attack, with every noble killed, with every village burned, Guthrum was exposing Alfred's weakness. The ravaging that the countryside was suffering was punitive, not just for Alfred, but also to any nobles who might have had a drop of rebellion in them. Guthrum was enforcing submission, and he was making examples out of any who didn't give it willingly. This was a visceral form of propaganda. He was telling the people of Wessex that no one was coming to save them. Certainly not Alfred. But the thing about tactics like these is that they can easily blow up in your face. Sometimes they do break the back of a resistance movement and establish the ruling order's legitimacy through force. But other times, they provide exactly the concrete example of illegitimacy that the people need in order to fully mobilize. These vicious raids were a high-risk move by Guthrum. But given the cultural context of the time, it might have been the best option out of a whole host of bad options. However, talking about these events from a position of distance and talking about the choices these men made on an academic and strategic level seems like we're doing ourselves and this period a disservice. Homes were being lost here. People were dying. These were real people who were left to suffer the consequences of the choices that we're talking about. And many of them were peasants. They wouldn't have had much, if any, agency in this situation. They couldn't pick up and flee to Mercia, or Francia, or anywhere else for that matter. They were stuck. And they were also stuck with whatever their lord decided to do. If their lord fought, then they would be rebels, and they would be expected to face off with the army that had just defeated King Alfred. It was an awful situation, and even the West Saxon landowners and nobles were in a bad spot here. I mean, what would you do in their situation? Let's say you're a churl. You're a lesser landowning freeman, you've got half a dozen hides of land, and you live a life of relative comfort in your village. These lands have come to you through inheritance, and you've got a long history in this area. Your family have been West Saxon for as long as there have been West Saxons, and consequently your family has always been loyal to the House of Wessex. It's tradition. It's what you know. It's what's right. You feel it right down to your bones, this sense of duty and honor. And then you hear that King Alfred was deposed, the last scion of the House of Wessex. And while you have been hearing rumors that he escaped, you're also hearing from these tall foreigners that he's dead. And those same tall foreigners are now saying that their man, some guy named Guthrum, 
is your king. He's already burned down multiple villages. Major figures of the Witan are already under his control, and some have even sworn fealty to him. And now, word arrives that your elderman has submitted to this new king Guthrum, that on his order, you will now be ruled by these foreign people who speak in a strange tongue and worship pagan gods. Would you stay quiet? Would you accept your lot even though you felt that this was a betrayal? And before you say, yeah, definitely, one boss isn't all that different from any other boss, don't forget the cultural context in all of this. Don't forget the raw xenophobia of this period. Don't forget how religion cast its shadow over this entire situation and how all of this went against the honor culture that bound this society together. These are the Anglo-Saxons. And think about what we've learned from the record about these people. Even after their leaders are killed in battle, their war bands would still choose to die in a suicide charge rather than submit to a rival leader. Honor and loyalty were paramount. They even transcended death. Furthermore, their god was a wrathful one who demanded submission and exclusive unwavering loyalty. Switching sides wasn't just accepting a new king. This was abandoning your honor, shaming your ancestors, and royally pissing off God. All for a stranger who looked wrong, spoke in a way that felt immoral, and generally gave you the heebie-jeebies because he was just so different. And different was bad. So, with all that in mind, would you stay loyal and fight the way your ancestors would have? Or what if instead of being a churl, you were the elderman? You have hundreds, possibly thousands of lives that depend on you. You have your lands, your wealth, and your family's future to look after. Personal honor and gut feelings about outsiders are one thing, but when your decisions impact the lives of so many people, would you still stay loyal and risk it all? Or would you abandon your oaths and bow to Guthrum? It's no easy choice, is it? And make no mistake about it, the stakes were incredibly high. People were dying, and many more would die before it was over, should this war continue. Though at this point, it's not really a war. War implies that there's two sides. What Guthrum was engaging in right now throughout the West Saxon towns was a slaughter. And faced with this choice, between abandoning everything that made them an Anglo-Saxon noble, other than the land, or losing their lives in a suicide charge, it seems that many nobles went for a third option and fled overseas. Now, I suspect that some nobles weren't given all that much of a choice. The Chronicle tells us that Guthrum settled somewhere in Wessex not long after his victory at Chippenham, so we can be relatively certain that a sharing out of land, much like what happened in Mercia and Northumbria, was probably happening in Wessex. And the nobles who held those lands that Guthrum's men wanted very well might have found themselves suddenly homeless and on the run, regardless of what they thought about this new Scandinavian authority that was ruling Wessex. But the point is that a lot of nobles were fleeing across the sea. And right at around this point, an elderman named Wolf Hera appears in our story. He was a noble who'd been a member of the court since the days of King Athelwolf, who was Alfred's father. And many scholars believe that he was the person who was ruling over Wiltshire. And Wiltshire was one of the targets of Guthrum's ravaging. 
and Elderman Wolf Hera seems to have gotten the message, because pretty soon thereafter, he switched sides. Or at least, that's what we think happened. Because many years later, we see him being punished for this act by being stripped of lands and titles because he, quote, deserted without permission both his lord King Alfred and his country in spite of the oath that he had sworn to the king and all his leading men, end quote. And that comment does go in line with what we're hearing from the Chronicle, that there were a great number of West Saxons who submitted to Guthrum. And of course they were. If the venerable Elderman Wolf Hera who have been a servant to the House of Wessex since the days of Alfred's father, could be turned. There must have been other nobles in play. And from the sounds of things, quite a lot of them. I mean, here's the quote from the Chronicle. Guthrum, quote, drove many of the people over sea, and the rest of the great part they rode down and subdued to their will. All but Alfred the king, end quote. Now that last bit was likely an exaggeration. Guthrum does appear to have been incredibly active in the West, and of course he would be. That's where his army was, and it's also where his new lands appear to have been. And it was also close to where Alfred ran to. So submission or flight was probably the order of the day for many of the West Saxons in Wiltshire and Somerset. But Wessex was a lot more than just Wiltshire and Somerset. And if you're wondering what was going on in Kent and the rest of the Eastern Territories... You're not alone. Scholars have been discussing that particular subject for generations. And we don't know. But what we're relatively certain of is that Guthrum's victory was hardly as complete as the Chronicle implies. But things were tough in the West. And Alfred, hiding in the swamps, was caught in a difficult position. While it was risky to start maneuvering when Guthrum and his army was so close, he kind of had little choice. If he did nothing, he would be ceding ground to Guthrum, and he would be confirming what Guthrum was working so hard to prove to the West Saxons, that no one was coming to save them, and that their only hope was to submit. Alfred had to act, but he also needed information. It's no good leading a fight if you don't know what the terrain looks like. He needed to contact those that were still loyal to the House of Wessex. But given what was happening out there, who would that have been? So I guess first things first, he needed to work out which nobles would even be safe to contact. But thanks to the loss at Chippenham and the resulting brutality that followed Guthrum's victory, Alfred had been delivered a key advantage. Thanks to the ravaging of the West, and thanks to how many people were now rendered homeless, travelers had probably become a common sight. And Alfred's forces were small in number, and probably looked a great deal like refugees. So, to get information, all Alfred needed to do was to disperse his men throughout Somerset and have them pose as traveling refugees. And then, they'd just need to keep their heads down, listen, and find out who submitted, and who was chafing at Guthrum's new order. This must have been nerve-wracking work, but it was also necessary. They needed to know what was happening. And my guess is that this would have been how they went about it. And this phase of the war might even have been where we get those stories about Alfred acting as a spy, disguising himself as a minstrel and learning of Guthrum's plans. Now, having Alfred conduct spy work himself was dangerous. One mistake could land him in the same place that Caractacus found himself in when he misjudged Cardamandua back in the Roman times. 
but Asser tells us of a ferocious and energetic man. And Alfred might have been uncomfortable sending his men out on these tasks without carrying them out himself as well. So perhaps it wasn't just his men who were out there trying to catch word of what was happening. He might have been out there as well. And don't forget that Alfred's army were members of court. They all knew the nobles. When they heard about what was happening to these towns, they were hearing about their friends, their families, maybe even their rivals. So as they were learning about the people who were killed in Guthrum's attacks and the people who fled into Francia, these weren't strangers. This wasn't like hearing about a random murder in the news. This was like finding out that your Uncle Bob had just been knifed in the alley behind his favorite bar. And as for those who joined the Danes, this would be like finding out that Uncle Frank decided to join that biker gang, even though he knew that they killed Uncle Bob. Maybe even rode with him when it happened. So this was personal. And I imagine that the outrage would have been hard to contain when they heard of Elderman Wolf Hera's betrayal and realized that Wiltshire was now firmly under Guthrum's control. When that story came out, I bet it would have been hard to stay quiet and not let on who you were. But public outrage wasn't the reason why they were there. They were there to find allies. And they did. It seems that Guthrum's scorched earth tactics had begun to work against him. While it does appear to have led some West Saxons to swear allegiance to him as the new king, and while he has been successful at crushing any rebellious nobles to such a degree that many were choosing just to leave Britain entirely, Guthrum was also overreaching, and he was pushing some West Saxons beyond the breaking point, to that dangerous place where they felt they had nothing left to lose. And that's where Elderman Athelnoth of Somerset enters our story. His lands, much like the lands of his neighbor Elderman Wolf Hera, were squarely in Guthrum's crosshairs. But unlike Wolf Hera, Athelnoth wouldn't submit, and consequently he had little choice but to flee. The only question was where he would flee to. According to Ethelweird's chronicle, he fled straight to Alfred and to the Isle of Athelney. And that little detail is why I'm so convinced that Alfred and his men were active in the eastern portions of Somerset and reaching out to those that they felt could be turned. Because Athelnoth knew exactly where to find Alfred. And Alfred's work was now paying off. With the arrival of Elderman Athelnoth, Alfred would finally be able to bring the war to Guthrum because Athelnoth of Somerset was able to bring something to the table that Alfred lacked. Local legitimacy. Alfred was the legitimate ruler of Wessex, but he was also something of an unknown quantity for many of his subjects. Unferth the farmer wouldn't be able to pick Alfred out of a lineup if his life depended on it. Their worlds were simply too far apart. It's unlikely that he ever would have even seen Alfred in person, not even if he worked in the fields in a town that was close to Winchester, like Basing. And as for the farmers in Somerset, forget about it. The chances of them ever seeing Alfred are incredibly minuscule. But there were people that that farmer did know. He knew the churl that he served. And he also would have known that his churl served Elderman Athelnoth. He might have even seen him a couple times. So Athelnoth gave Alfred a connection to the people of Somerset that Alfred simply wouldn't have acquired on his own. Furthermore, Athelnoth knew which locals would support Alfred, and which wouldn't. 
He also knew these lands and knew where they could hide and where Guthrum would be exposed. With the arrival of Athelnoth, all the pieces were in place. He was no longer just an ousted king with a handful of retainers. Alfred was now leading a regional rebellion with local support. That's critical, and it would change everything. And Ethelweird tells us that Alfred and Athelnoth, quote, together with the whole province of Somerset, never ceased to engage in daily contests with the barbarians, and no others assisted them except those servants who were provisioned at the king's expense, end quote. So the groundwork had been laid. And now the direct armed phase of Alfred's guerrilla war would begin. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Just go to at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hit me! Generals gathered in their masses. Get out of the way. Just like witches at Black Masses. Get out the way, bitch. Get out of the way. Evil minds that plot destruction. Get out of the way.